invite you to turn in your copies of the Scripture to the fourth chapter of the book of Judges. Today's sermon is a follow-on to last week's sermon as we are surveying a few of the women in the Bible who had significant impact on the people of God by virtue of their service. Last week we looked at two women from the New Testament, uh, Priscilla, the wife of Aquila, and Phoebe, uh, both of whom are sisters in Christ whom we will meet in the glorious place in the not-too-distant future. Now, some of you are young and you think, well, yeah, it is a distant future. Well, that's kind of a relative term. When our lives are, what, three score and ten, according to the Scriptures, is a typical life cycle. Uh, that pales in comparison to the eternity that we're going to live in with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Nevertheless, uh, today we're going to look at the example of Deborah. So from Judges chapter 4, once again, this is the very Word of God. When Ehud was dead, the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who dwelt in Harasheth Hagian. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, for Jabin had 900 chariots of iron, and for 20 years he had harshly oppressed the children of Israel. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lipidoth, was judging Israel at the time, and she would sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the mountains of Ephraim. And the children of Israel came to her for judgment. Then she sent and called for Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh and Naphtali, and and said to him, Has not the Lord God of Israel commanded, Go and deploy troops at Mount Haber, Take with you ten thousand men of the sons of Naphtali and the sons of Zebulun. And against you I will deploy Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his multitude at the river Kishon, and I will deliver him into your hand. And Barak said to her, If you will go with me, then I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. So she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, there will be no glory for you in the journey you are taking. The Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. He went up with 10,000 men under his command, and Deborah went up with him. Now Heber, the Kenite Kenite of the children of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, had separated himself from the Kenites and pitched his tent near the terebinth tree at Zanium, which is beside Kadesh. And they reported to Sisera that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor. So Sisera gathered together all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the people who were with him from Harosheth Hagalim to the river Kishon. Then Deborah said to Barak, Up! For this is the day in which the Lord has delivered Sisera into your hand. Has not the Lord gone out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. 
And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army with the edge of the sword before Barak. And Sisera alighted from his chariot and fled away on foot. But Barak pursued the chariots and the army as far as, far as Harasheth Hegium. And all the army of his Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. However, Sisera had fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite. For there was no peace between Jabin, king of Hazor, and the house of Heber, the Kenite. And Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord. Turn aside to me. Do not fear. And when he had turned aside with her into the tent, she covered him with a blanket. Then he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a jug of milk, gave him a drink, and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the door of the tent, and if any man comes and inquires of you and says, Is there any man here? You shall say no. Then Jael, Heber's wife, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand and went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple and it went down into the ground, for he was fast asleep and weary. So he died. And then as Barak pursued Sisera, Jael came out to meet him and said to him, Come, I will show you the man whom you seek. And when he went into her tent, there lay Sisera, dead, with the peg in his temple. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, king of Canaan, in the presence of the children of Israel. And the hand of the children of Israel grew stronger and stronger against Jabin, king of Canaan, until they had destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever and ever. Let us pray. Father, the drama that we've just read about that happened so many centuries ago, yea, even millennia, is just as true today as it was then, that you raise up deliverers in the midst of tyrannies and you put down the tyrannical by the power of your word. We thank you for Deborah, a faithful woman, a woman who was so faithful that the people of Israel flocked to her for wisdom and judgment. I pray that you would give Trinity women of that character, of that esteem, not just for our sakes, but for the sakes of their families and the sakes of your people. And this area in which we live, this geographic area. Father, we thank You also that You gave a weak man victory in the person of Barak. Father, we have a church of weak men. We admit that. Would You be so kind as to give us victory in this day? Father, we thank You for crafting Your story where You elevate the weak things of this earth to confound the wise and the pride-filled peoples of this land. May we see Your mighty hand work as it did in the days of De Deborah, even today. 
And we commit this to Your care, knowing that You and Your Son, Jesus Christ, who sits at Your right hand until You make His enemies a footstool, rule and reign over all nations. And with that in mind, we take comfort, Lord, and rejoice that we serve the King of kings and Lord of lords. For it's in His name we pray. Amen. As I mentioned before, we're in the midst of surveying the lives of some profoundly faithful women in the Scriptures. And today we're going to consider the example of Deborah from Judges 4. Now the purpose of this survey is to consider several objections to the didactic teachings of the Scriptures that we considered two weeks ago from 1 Timothy chapter 2, where the Apostle Paul wrote these words, I desire therefore that the men that the men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. In like manner also that the women adore themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. Let a woman learn in silence with all submission, and do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence." For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman, being deceived, fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. Brethren, as we consider Deborah's example in light of Paul's teaching, we must not overlook the setting in which the account of Deborah's significance is placed. Context is everything, as some of our Reformed teachers teach us about interpreting the Scriptures. In the book of Judges, we find an unusual cyclical pattern that we don't find in other places in Scripture. It teaches us of an Israelite people who had been delivered from the Egyptians and given a promised land, but much like their failings before God to initially enter that land, now they have failed to fully take the land as God had instructed them. And they are suffering the consequences. Evil kings are rising up and by their tyrannies are suppressing the people of God. A familiar cycle begins with the people sinning against God and being judged by God, then repenting and crying out to God, and then being restored. And this happens time and again. But the book ends with an alarming conclusion. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This whole period of time where the people of Israel cyclically go through this sinning and then God's judgment where God then provides a deliverer and as they call out to Him, He raises them back up. It happens over and over and they don't learn from that cycle. Unfortunately, that too often is the case with us, isn't it? With sins that we want to protect in our own lives. That we want to go back to over and over. God calls us to throw off that cycle to put on the armor of God, to withstand the fiery darts of the evil one. 
and to stand in the faith and be firm. Well, in Judges 4, a very faithful judge, his name is Ehud. Ehud has died. You'll remember Ehud, the left-handed man who killed Eglon, king of the Moabites. And you remember Eglon, don't you? The big fat king. So fat that when Eglon pressed his dagger into Eglon's stomach, the flesh swallowed it up, his dagger. And Eglon died. And Ehud, a clever man, locked Eglon into his chamber. And when the guards came to inquire as to where the king was, Ehud says, well, he's in the privacy of his own dwelling. And Ehud lights out, uh, gathers an army, and then comes and crushes the armies of Eglon. Well, both Ehud and Shamgar were judges in Israel at the time. And if you look at the previous chapter in the book of Judges, chapter 3, it ends with one of my favorite verses of all time. And it's regarding this judge named Shamgar. There we read in verses... uh, There we see that Shamgar took an ox goad. You know what an ox goad is, don't you? It's a long stick. It's got a point on the end. And when you're plowing in the field and your ox, who weighs at least a ton, if not more, decides to stop and stop working, you take that pointed stick and you jab it in a very sensitive place and he begins to move again. Well, Shamgar took that stick and he stabbed hundreds of Philistines with it and killed them as a judge in Israel. Why? Because they hated the king of Israel, Jehovah. Jehovah God. And he had been told, as had all the Israelites, to subdue the land that God had given them and expunge that land from all who do not name the name of God. Well, it's in this circumstance, these two men, we don't know if Shamgar has died. All we know is that he, we have this one verse about Shamgar. There is one other place where Shamgar is mentioned. We'll look at that here in a moment. But we don't know if Shamgar continues to judge Israel, but God does tell us that the people of Israel at the death of Ehud fall back into this cycle where they are embracing their sin once again, and God is bringing judgment. And this time He brings judgment by way of the king of Canaan, Jabin. And Jabin's a a tyrant. Nevertheless, God raises up another judge, but this judge is a very unusual judge. This is a woman. In verse 4 of our text, we learn two things about Deborah that are very important and give us clarity as to her importance in Israel. Verse 4 reads, Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lipidoth was judging Israel at the time. The phraseology of this verse has come has some importance. Deborah's title is that of prophetess. By the way, the Bible only speaks of eight prophetesses, if I can say it that way, if that's the plural of prophetess. Eight prophetesses in all of the scriptures. One of them is 
is that title is given to Jezebel, who was not a righteous prophetess. She was a very unrighteous woman. So seven of the women in Scripture are spoken of as prophetesses, one of which was Deborah. This is a special class of person in Israel, a prophet. That's a special class in Israel. The prophets were considered the oracles of God. They, They were the embodiment of God's message to the people. Um, When they spoke and it came to pass, the people of Israel understood their importance. This is an oracle. This is something beyond just mere, uh, mere speeches. This is the very Word of God coming before us. They were also, in large measure, a despised class of people. They brought tidings of judgment often to the people of God, and so they were often killed by the Israelites because the Israelites loved their sin more than they loved their God. And yet, in this circumstance, the prophetess Deborah is also a judge in Israel. She's not despised. We're going to find out why in just a few minutes. She's not despised. Though she would bring bad tidings to Israel for their sin and call them to repentance, she was also considered a very wise woman. A woman who was sought out for her wisdom and her faithfulness to God. What made Deborah different from the male leadership in Israel or the female leadership in Israel for that matter? After all, in Isaiah 3.12, a chapter that describes the judgment of God that was brought against Jerusalem as well as Judah, part of God's judgment on His people is that they would be ruled by children and women. God says, this is how I judge my own people. And yet, He's raised up Deborah at this time to judge the people. So again, what made Deborah unique is at this time and in this place? What was it? I believe that part of the answer is found in Deborah and Barak's song in the very next chapter in the book of Judges, recorded in Judges chapter 5. Now, just parenthetically, when something significant happens in the history of the people of Israel, almost always you see a song written about it. Almost always a song is written about it. For instance, Moses, at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, he's about to die because he's told he can't go into the promised land. And yet, they're on the verge of entering the promised land. And what does Moses do? He writes a song. It's a very long song, actually. But he writes a song. Remember Habakkuk, when I preached from the book of Habakkuk? Habakkuk looks at the people of Israel, he laments the fact that they're so sinful, says, God, do something about this. This is, this is terrible. He's up on the high tower on the wall of Jerusalem calling for God to do something. Do something. Correct these people. God says, you don't realize what you're bargaining for, Habakkuk. I'm going to do that, but I'm going to be, bring a more wicked people than they to judge that wicked people. And Habakkuk reels in horror. He reels back in horror. And then he comes to his senses. You are the sovereign living God. 
you know better how to deal with this than we do. Do your work. And what does Habakkuk do? He writes a song. When God does profound things in the Scripture, often a song is given to that circumstance. And in chapter 5 of Judges is a long song that both Barak and Deborah pen for the people of God. Part of that song in verses 6 and 7 teach us a little bit about Deborah that I think is very important. Chapter 5, verse 6. In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, so Shamgar is likely still alive at this point in time, the highways were deserted and the travelers walked along the byways. Village life ceased. It ceased in Israel until I, Deborah, arose. Arose a mother in Israel. That's the phraseology. I arose a mother in Israel. Deborah arose doing the very thing she was created to do. Be a mother and a godly example to her family and the people around her. That's what she was doing. She was being a faithful example to her family, her children, and in her eyes, the people around her who were also her children. Simple obedience on her part was rewarded greatly by God. Now I'll return to this principle in a few moments, but this brings us to a very important question. Is the example of Deborah the norm for God's people or the exception in Scripture for God's people? Is the example of Deborah the norm or the exception? In other words, is Deborah meant to be an example of how God normally raises up leadership for His people? Or is her example an exception to the normal practice? I would argue that it is an exception to the norms of the Scripture, but that it is very much a prefiguring of God's primary example in our Lord Jesus Christ. If that sounds duplicitous, in a sense it is. How then can can both be true? How can Deborah be both an exception and the norm? Well, as we consider all of Scripture, from Genesis through Revelation, I want us to consider a question. How many women are recorded as being judges or leaders in Israel? How many women are judges or leaders in Israel? Now, my memory is diminishing, and I admit that readily. But I can only think of two. I can only think of two. Deborah, in our text today, and Esther, who Isaac taught on just this past few months. Of these two, Deborah stands alone as a judge in Israel. Esther did not have that privilege. The norm of the Scriptures is that God raises up men to lead His people in deliverance. However, on occasion, in the midst of God's judgment upon His people, God chooses a woman to be His means of deliverance. 
Now, in both exceptional cases, Deborah and Esther, male leadership was not completely absent from the circumstances. For Deborah, God would use a timid Barak to lead his people to victorious battle, though Jael, Heber's wife, would get the glory. In the case of Esther, she was aided by her first cousin, Mordecai, who was actually her, her, had responsibility for her care as well. And he was pivotal in the deliverance of Israel from the schemes of Haman, as we learned just a few months ago. Yet in both the Old and New Testaments, we see male leadership being the norm and female leadership the exceptional circumstance. It is also evident from the Scriptures that the lack of male leadership is because of the unfaithfulness of men. They're in the need for an exceptional leader like Deborah. And this goes right back to the fall, doesn't it? Did, did Adam jump between Satan and Eve and, and show some leadership there and, and take up a sword and, and uh, go after the serpent? No. He cowered in the background. I guess he was a prefiguring of Barak, as we'll see in a moment. Men, God will deliver his people and he'll choose to use women if we won't do our jobs. You got to stand up. You got to hold on. You got to act by faith and not by sight. And we'll see that in a minute with Barak. Now we have to ask the question, did God use this woman for the benefit of Israel? How could we conclude otherwise? Indeed, he did. Profoundly. God did use Deborah in a mighty way to deliver Israel from the tyrannies of Jabin, king of the Canaanites. And at the end of the chapter, we see it was a total rout of Jabin. God gave to this faithful mother in Israel the courage to demand of Barak that he assemble his armies against Jabin's army so that God would deliver them into Barak's hands. And in verses 6 and 7 of our text, we read these words. Pay careful attention to how it's phrased. Then she went and called for Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh and Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord God of Israel commanded, Go and deploy troops at Mount Tabor, Take with you 10,000 men of the sons of Naphtali and the sons of Zebulun. And against you, I will deploy Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his multitude at the river Kishon, and I will deliver him into your hand. Now apparently this was not news to Barak. Has not the Lord God of Israel commanded? This was already known to Barak. Now, I don't know if it was Deborah's prophecy that was previously given to Barak or not, but she calls for Barak to come and she says to him, has not the Lord of Israel commanded you do this? These were Deborah's words. Deborah confronts Barak and says, what are you waiting for, bud? Buck up. Get some courage. God's commanded this. Do it. Do you wonder why prophets were killed in Israel? I mean, she's saying this to the, the, 
the, the general of the armies of God. Buck up. You're a coward. It's time to, time to face the music. God's called you for a purpose and you're supposed to do it. Assemble your army of 10,000 and God will assemble Sisera's army opposite you and God will deliver them into your hand. Notice God's sovereignty there. Who's assembling the armies of the wicked? God Himself. Why? Because they are going to be overthrown dramatically. So much so that all Israel will know it was the hand of God at work here. There'll be no question about it. Notice Barak's tepid response to Deborah. Well, if you go with me, I'll go up. But if you don't go with me, I'm not going. This is, this is the general of the army. If you go with me, ma'am, I'll go. But if you don't, I'm not going. Praise the Lord that the armies of Israel did not witness that. I think their morale had been at its lowest ebb. This is the man who's leading us into war? Do we really want this guy? Again, notice that God deploys the pagan army against Israel in verse 7. And by the way, brethren, this is no ragtag army. This, it's not an ill-equipped army. They possess the most modern armament of the day. Chariots. Now the Israelites were prohibited in having chariots. You can go back into, the, into Deuteronomy and uh, the book of Numbers and realize that God specifically prohibited the Israelites from owning and using chariots. Do you know why? Chariots were considered an offensive weapon. The Israelites, more often than not, were supposed to be a defensive-minded army. Defensive-minded. Now, at times, God would call them to the offense, as He's done here. But the Scripture says that God went before Him, before them, to rout the armies of Sisera. God was the offensive weapon. It wasn't chariots. It wasn't tanks. It wasn't modern-day offensive weapons. No, the people of Israel were both protected and led by the greatest offensive weapon in the universe. The mighty hand of God. Sisera's army possesses the greatest armament of the day. And not just a few chariots. They have 900 iron chariots, according to verse 3. Well, you might say it's unlikely that they were all employed in the battle. After all, he probably held most of them in reserve, didn't he? Well, in verses 12 through 14, God records that all his chariots and all his men were assembled for this battle and they were completely routed. All the strength of Jabin, the king of the Canaanites, and Sisera, his chief marshal on the field, all their might was deployed and all their might was destroyed by the greatest offensive weapon known in the universe. The mighty hand of God. Brethren, God's dramatic deliverance of Israel happened against a substantial foe. Happened against a substantial foe 
and God's army was led by a tepid general. We need to learn how God, te- te- how God tells stories to us. We need to look, if, look for these details. The Bible teaches us that God uses the weak things of the world to subdue the mighty. The weak things of the world to subdue the mighty. And right here is a very substantial example. Does not God say, I am the Lord, I do not change. Therefore, you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. Malachi 3.6 So this brings us to the application of the passage. How does Deborah's example compare to that of Christ? That's the question I want to answer. Deborah was a mother in Israel whose faithful obedience was rewarded by God with special gifting. Let me say that again. Her faithful obedience was rewarded by God with special gifting. In a time when Israel was unfaithful, Deborah was a shining light to the people of God of faithfulness. Furthermore, her faithfulness was mature in that she exhibited much self-control. The kind of self-control Paul describes in 1 Timothy 2.15, the end of that portion that I read earlier from 1 Timothy 2. It seems evident from Judges 4 that Deborah had substantially more courage than Barak and likely could have raised an army from the people of God to crush Sisera's army. She could have done it herself. Yet Deborah did not leap ahead of God's revelation regarding the overthrow of the tyrant King Jabin. Remember what she said? Has not the Lord commanded? You, Barak, are to assemble this army, and he's going to bring Sisera's army against you, and you're going to rout them. When Barak retorted, well, if you go with me, I'll go, but if you don't go with me, I won't go. It would have been easy for Deborah to say, get out of my tent. I'll do it. If you're not going to do it, I'll do it. But she didn't do that. She said, I will go with you, but this is your work, not my work. This is your work. That's self-control. Deborah did not leap ahead of God's revelation regarding the overthrow of the tyrant King Jabin. No, she remained faithful to the end affirming with all courage the necessity of Barak to lead the armies of Israel. As God had commanded, both Barak and Deborah. Someday I hope to ask her if she had her doubts that day. I mean, she put her faith and trust in this guy too. When we get to heaven, I'm going to ask her, did you have any doubts about that? I'll be anxious to hear the answer. Not only did she insist Barak lead the armies of God, she remained on the heights of Mount Tabor as an observer of the great battle that ended Jabin's tyrannies. She didn't go down into the battle. She remained on the mountaintop. 
likely in prayer for Barak and the armies of Israel. She did not go ahead of God in these things. She remained faithfully obedient. She didn't seek glory. That was left to Barak and another homemaker, Jael, who wasn't even at the battle. Indeed, God works in mysterious ways His wonders to perform, does He not? He gave the glory to somebody that wasn't even there. That's how God tells a story. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. God teaches us. And we are to rest in that with every confidence that God will show us that in due time. As He did with the people of Israel. Now, I pose the question, does Deborah's example, how does it compare to Christ's? Consider the example of Jesus Christ. He was born a king, but without the pomp and circumstance, save for the proclamation of the heavenly host and the worship of foreign wise men. That's the only way we know that he was born a king. His life was threatened by the Roman magistrate at his birth. His family flees to a pagan country for safe hiding, only to return to his own people who despised and rejected him. How many of you would have chosen that lifestyle? He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He wept over Jerusalem, the city of peace. That's what Jerusalem means as the Prince of Peace. He preached a gospel of peace and salvation, and for all that, he was falsely accused of blasphemy and murdered on a cross. But God was not done with the story. Jesus rose from the dead on the third day and overthrew all history in those two acts, dying on the cross, and rising again. Sin, sin, where is your sting? Death, tell me, where is your victory? Because in Christ Jesus, both were overthrown. Just as Deborah did not presume upon God's favor and endeavor to go before God in the battle against Sisera's army, Jesus faithfully did the will of the Father as he said over and over again, and is recorded in John's Gospel. To the very end, he did the will of the Father. And his reward is to sit at the right hand of the Father until his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. God the Father is the great judge of his enemies. He determines their demise and will bring it to fruition. Our duty is to remain faithful to him. And he will use his own special people in subduing the earth. So how do we do it? James teaches us this. James 4.10 Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Let us pray.